Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. Today, we hear from top execs at Banerjee Group, BBC Studios, Blink49 Studios and MGM, who discuss industry issues such as the rise of immersive experiences based on TV shows, UK TV's acquisition needs, vertical integration at the US studios, and the deepening ties between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. Anyone who's been to Disneyland knows that real-life experiences based on entertainment IP is nothing new. But with ambitious, immersive experiences based on hit properties such as Netflix's Stranger Things growing in popularity, more and more TV companies are exploring ways they can get in on the action. As the world's largest international content producer and distributor, with over 120 production companies across 22 territories, Banerjee is making ambitious inroads into the sector, with Chief Commercial Officer Owen Warbioff overseeing the push. I spoke to Owen about these moves, which span scripted and unscripted IP, including Peaky Blinders, Crystal Maze, Masterchef, and, he reveals, Black Mirror, as Banerjee-owned House of Tomorrow begins work on new episodes of the British anthology series for Netflix. Owen also discusses how the pandemic has affected consumer behaviour around live events, the ways in which digital worlds are bringing immersive experiences based on TV shows back into people's homes, and Banerjee's ambitions to develop new and original content specifically for the metaverse. My role at Banerjee is running their commercial division, so we're responsible for the monetization of the group's IP. So once we sell a show or format to a broadcaster, we retain the commercial rights for exploitation. So we sell those rights to uh, different uh, manufacturers or developers who then go on to create branded products with our IP. They take those products to market, sell them to consumers, and then they pay us royalties off the back of that. So I run the commercial division and the entity within Banerjee is called Banerjee Brands. And to what extent is live entertainment, because that's an interesting area, um, is live entertainment kind of a really fast growing segment of of what you do? Yeah, so we call, we tend to call it experiential, live experiences, I think. So pre-COVID, it was a real growth area for us and something that we were focusing on. Obviously, when COVID happened, it stopped like like many other categories, but I think that was probably the one that was hit hardest for us. Actually, some of, the, some of our categories grew in COVID, but that one definitely didn't. It halted dramatically. But yes, it's, it's a focus for us. And actually, since, since COVID's finished, it's booming, it's rebounded, and everybody wants to get back out there now without their face masks on and experience things. So yeah, it's a, it's a focus for us, for sure. So with Peaky Blinders, what we found is that we had lots of pop-up events. Some were, un- most were unlicensed, which was, uh, which was a, a problem, but we've got some fantastic legal talent to help us with those situations. Yeah, there it's definitely a thing, isn't it, on, to do with copyright, because there's also Peaky Blinders barbers you see yeah. around certain towns. No, so is, no. is that a, an issue, you know, on, on that scale? And the bar, like there's Peaky Blinders bar, theme bars, I think yeah. I've seen, heard stories of. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it is an issue. Certainly if we don't, if we don't, 
own the trademark. It's disappointing. So, so now what we do is we have a trademarking team within Banerjee and we presume that a new format will be a success. So early, we spend money at protecting or applying and then owning the trademarks so that we're then responsible for the exploitation. So in, it, sometimes in the past, and you know, we won't go into why, but if we don't own a trademark and a third party has owns it and then is operating an event, then you know that that's disappointing for us. But then you know, in the past, we've worked with them and enhanced it, and we've we've shared in the success. But then again, when you get the unlicensed operators who are create who have created events with your brands and then are monetizing them. Then yeah, we're we're very aggressive there with our with our legal teams. You know, we go after them, we send them cease and desist letters as you would because there are rights. It's our brand. Um, so yeah, you get you do tend to get, shall we say, entrepreneurial people that want to to start things up and and, and go for something, and they're willing to do it for a for, for however long it takes you to stop them or close them down. They're willing to do it, um, but. Uh, yeah, that's 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 obviously unfortunate, but you know that it also it, it's it's expected. And how are you seeing it develop in terms of scripted and non-scripted IP? It, it, it varies, doesn't it? So when you look at uh, unscripted formats, and you look at shows like Crystal Maze, for example, it, it's very obvious what you do. So how do you replicate the Crystal Maze television format as a live event experience it, it it's quite it's quite obvious and it's also quite exciting and actually we have a fantastic operator that has created events in london and manchester and does fantastically well with that brand and replicates the problem solving cerebral physical elements that the contestants on the show go through and manages to successfully replicate those in a live event experience so you can go with your mates your partner you know your wife your kids your family whoever it might be whatever the group but working together to try and solve a puzzle so it's it's obviously staying it's easy is 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 not right but it's it's more obvious what you do with crystal maze it's less obvious what you do with a brand like black mirror but Black Mirror is enormous format. Coming back on Netflix, one of Netflix's biggest, if not their biggest brand show. But because Black Mirror is an, is, is an anthology-based format, the licensee or event operator will need to be creative and tell a new story, create a new story. I mean, there's always the option to use an existing one and modify that, but... It's harder, isn't it, from a creative perspective, what you do with Black Mirror compared to what you do with, say, the Crystal Maze. Um, but again, then going back to another non-scripted format like MasterChef, MasterChef is about food. So therefore, if you create a live event experience with MasterChef, then it needs to it needs to involve food, whether it's eating or cooking. Um, one of the biggest challenges for us with some with a format like MasterChef and licensing the rights to a live event 
to a licensee is is quality. You know, you can't you can't have a master chef restaurant that that sells bad food because it's then damaging to the brand. So when a consumer goes to the master chef restaurant, it's it has an expectation and, and the licensee has to deliver that. You mentioned Black Mirror. Yeah. So you know, tech is at the heart of, of that yeah. show in many ways. To what extent do the live experiences that Banerjee is exploring VR, you know, that's a potential avenue to explore. Yeah. And I feel it feels like we've been talking for many years now about when VR is gonna kind of come into the mainstream and maybe it never will, but it definitely feels like there's a place for VR in certain experiences. So yeah, how are you exploring kind of a, a VR, AR, and other kinds of tech, even the metaverse? I think there was one one really successful example of a VR live event experience. And actually, because we're based in Shepherd's Bush, I remember it being in Westfield and it was with Star Wars. Um, and, you know, you'd go there, you, you'd put on the headset, you'd have your gun, and then you'd be immersed, fully immersed in that experience. Although you're just walking around a, a pop-up stand in a, in a, um, in a shopping centre, people were fully immersed because of the quality of the of the the software, the gaming software. So that's uh, that's where I see one exciting opportunity for for Black Mirror, you know, a fully immersive, interactive experience with Black Mirror. You could see that working. Obviously, that requires a huge amount of investment from the licensee, but um, I think one that would be worth it. And we're exploring those sorts of partnerships now. But then, of course, you know, you you then you go on to you don't ha- it doesn't have to be a a lot. It doesn't have to be a, an, an event you attend physically. You could remotely join an event and therefore then you get into the whole VR gaming. You know, you've got these big gaming platforms now, massive multi-billion-dollar you know, businesses that are really looking up. You know, they're, they're assuming that the future is people immersing themselves from home in a he- with a headset with a with an avatar that is probably looking very potentially looking very differently to the one to your own physical self and again that's quite exciting because you know we're seeing that again our brands our ip are interesting to these platforms and they they want to offer our formats as part of those experiences within these these gaming platforms and then of course you have these metaverses which are being talked about, which are emerging now. You, know, you have Facebook Meta, you have Decentraland, you have Sandbox, where there's cryptocurrencies, and you know it, it, it's a it's a really interesting, fast fast moving space. And we're we're really lucky to have the IP that, that we do within Banerjee Brands, which is obviously created by our television business, and yeah, it gives us fantastic opportunities to go and license brands like Peaky Blinders and Black Mirror and even, you know, MasterChef to these to these new software platforms. And to what extent is the pandemic, because obviously we're still in it, uh, playing a part in how you're developing this area and this line of business? So I think we all we can do is listen to our licensees and the licensees are reacting to consumer behaviours and absolutely consumer behavior has changed and altered because of the pandemic. I do feel though that some categories are bouncing back really aggressively, like I said before, like people are ma- 
people really want to go on holidays and do holidays they never did before. Hospitality's back. People, uh, particularly in the UK, people don't have to wear face masks. Now, I, obviously, I can't talk for what it's like in markets like the US or France, Italy, where maybe their laws are different and they're, they're still affected or impacted by the pandemic. But I think what's clear is, you know, obviously we know people are at home more. So, yeah, mate, you, know, you, you see that gaming is booming. But then, you know, the, the other side of that is that I still think live events and hospitality are, are have bounced back really aggressively. So where, where it all ends up, you know, I, I just don't know. I just don't know at this point. Will we be impacted again by COVID or another virus? I'm not sure. But some things are definitely back with a bang. But yes, some things have changed. Some consumer behavior has changed. But all we can do is react to the demands of our licensees and, and what they want. You know, they're the clever ones that understand consumer behavior. Given the size of Banerjee, do you have all the kind of necessary people and skill set within the company to do events? You know, say you wanted... You mentioned Crystal Maze, say Hunted, you know, that became yeah. a kind of an, ex, a, an experiential um, yeah. event. Or do you have to work with third parties? Yeah, we work with third party operators who are specialists in, 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 in putting on events or experiences. You know, I think working with specialists is, is, is definitely the best way, particularly when the, the risk is with them, you know, so creating the event and the cost of that sits with them. Marketing and promoting the event generally is something that is a cost within their business. However, because of the size of our, our IP and our brands, and, you know, brands like Black Mirror have many millions of followers on social media platforms. So we, we obviously can and, and will help promote that event because it's within our interest to make it a success from a revenue perspective because we 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 share we share that revenue with them but no to to your question generally we rely on third parties to put on these events obviously the 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 idea of movies and tv shows being the basis of experiences is nothing new you know disney's been doing it for for decades but to what extent do you think so you've meant, we've mentioned Netflix and obviously Disney, you know, is, is a big streamer now. To what extent are the kind of broadcasters and that world of, of the TV industry kind of getting involved in this area as well? Well, you, you see fantastic success with what ITV has done with, say, the Coronation Street tours and, you know, rebuilding that set and how popular that is. So that you know they're, 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 they're they are already very much involved you see what warner brothers has done with the harry potter experiences so you know this isn't it's, it's not new but i think you're really you it depends on the format and how popular the brand is the reach the level of audience engagement but ultimately I think you are relying on third-party specialists to, to deliver it and execute it effectively because it's, it's, you know, it's a massive undertaking. <laughs> One thing that's really interesting for us at the moment is replicating events and experiences with our brands, and we touched on it earlier, on these digital universe, metaverse-type platforms. You know, if the world if the world does move that way, if, if audiences are increasingly 
going to these these if, if audiences are engaged by digital worlds then we need to we need to be thinking about creating content to engage those consumers on those platforms and obviously i still think that our tv brands will be part will be part of the metaverses but then when you look at the audiences that are part of these communities you maybe we we need to think differently from a creative perspective about the content that is created and produced and delivered on metaverses and actually banerjee is 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 thinking that way and investing in it already creatively when you see like the you know the the roblox fashion event which is a daily event and you've got you've got teenage teenagers now dragging their parents in to dress the avatar to then compete in that fashion show you have luxury brands already involved in this daily event because the audience is there such a it's an and it's a it's a captive fully engaged audience so we we need to be thinking about not just taking ip that already exists in the tv world and on streaming with streamers and on other digital platforms but we need to be thinking about new and original content for the metaverse and banerjee is already starting to do that which is brilliant Melanie Rumani oversees a team of 14 people who acquire content for 37 different services across the globe for channels including BBC Earth, BBC Brit and BBC First outside of the UK and channels in the UK such as Dave, Drama, Alibi and W. Having taken up the newly created role of global head of acquisitions for both BBC Studios and UK TV in 2020, Melanie and her team procure tens of thousands of hours annually from key indie distributors, US studios and producers globally, from finished productions to pre-sales. Melanie and her team have been making the most of the programming crossover between UK TV and BBC Studios channels. From shared scripted fare for UK TV's Alibi and Drama channels and BBC First, to factual titles for UK TV channels Dave, W Yesterday, as well as BBC Earth and Eden. Melanie spoke to C21 FM about the programming that's working well on the channels, both at home and abroad, and how its streaming service UK TV Play is opening up opportunities for her team to acquire different kinds of content. I head up a team of 14 of us who acquire uh, content for our 37, I think it is now, uh, different services across the globe. Yes, yeah, so to take me through those um, kind of as succinctly as possible, because that's <laughs> sure. a lot of networks. So that includes channels in the UK, but yep. also the BBC Studios channels abroad. Correct. So they're all BBC branded channels outside of the UK. So BBC Earth, BBC First, BBC Brit, BBC Lifestyle, uh, and CBeebies, actually, which is our preschool channel, which you know of here in the UK. And then all the UK TV channels here as well. Um, Alibi, Drama, Yesterday, Gold, Dave, Eden. A broad remit across all of those channels. And we have different channels in different territories outside of the UK, but most territories have every channel in them pretty much. And BBC Studios posted some really strong financials recently. And part of that was down to original production and the production it's doing. So how is that impacting 
the acquisitions and the number of acquisitions that uh, you're looking to make? So BBC Studios Productions, um, we do pick up for some of our channels, depending on what the what they are and whether they're right for our channels. I wouldn't say it impacts hugely on uh, what we're acquiring for our channels outside of the UK. Uh, we've, you know, we've got a long wish list of content that we buy. So we buy from lots of different suppliers, including BBC Studios. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a really, you know, great year, obviously, for BBC Studios as they posted. And particularly the channels have been doing really well. And a lot of that's down to, you know, great distribution teams that sell those channels in, but also... We've, we've been acquiring some great content too. So yeah, take me through some of those highlights. Yeah, sure. So here in the UK, some of the highlights uh, with, you know, lots. <laughs> we've acquired a lot for UK TV. Sister Boniface Mysteries has done really well for us. So um, that's come through BBC Studios. We've also had uh, CSI Vegas, which is, you know, a pretty big acquisition outside out of the US. Really well-known brand. Everyone knows CSI Vegas. Being able at CSI and being able to get the Vegas spin-off was great for us. So that's launched on Alibine. That's doing well as well. Um, all sorts of shows, Property Brothers, Abandoned Engineering, you know, these shows keep doing really well for us. And also outside of the uh, UK, we've acquired lots of first-run drama that we uh, buy here from distributors. So pretty much any drama you could name that's done really well in the UK over the last year. You know, we've been able to acquire it for our channels outside, for Benelux, Africa, Poland, um, and, you know, lots lots of dramas and lots of content. We, we have really, we have great access. Well, we acquire all the brilliant um, big brands that you see here in the UK as well. So in Africa, we pick up all of Jamie Oliver, Grand Designs. All of these shows do really well for us um, and we continue to commit to those. You know, we've, we've had a really good year and it's just keeps getting more and more exciting the more services we launch. There's more opportunity to acquire different kinds of content. Yeah, I think it was over 100 distributors when you spoke yeah. to C3 one last year that you mentioned you, you deal with. Yeah, we do. We deal with a lot. I mean, you know, most of our business is done with the key indies, but we do also deal with a lot of producers and smaller distributors as well. And we've got really good relationships across the board. Um, and but yeah, I think it was something like 80 to 90 suppliers we've we've done deals with over the past year now. Um, plus, we're just always talking to more as well, just to just to keep across development slates and keep the conversation going and how because obviously this year i think a big defining part of it for many in the industry has been able to go out to events again oh. so how has that been affecting uh what you've been able to see what you've been acquiring and what you're looking for um i don't think it's affected the buying process particularly i think being able to do everything on Zoom was great during the pandemic, uh, so didn't really feel like being back has necessarily impacted that. What it has been great for is obviously relationships and being able to see people face to face, being able to see your colleague, you know, fellow buyers and just chat. And it's it makes a really big difference to be there in person together. And I was at the LA screenings this year and, you know, you could see everyone was very excited 
to be together. Um, it was a real, there was a real buzz about it. I guess probably just it's just quite interesting to see how much the industry has changed in the past two or three years, really. You know, the pandemic's really accelerated a lot of that change. The obvious one, I guess, being the, the studios moving to a year-round development model. And that works, you know, instead of everything being launched a pilot season, it's kind of year-round. So that does mean that some, I mean, that's always the way we've worked as a team. So it's not a big change for us, but I guess some studios are going to have to adapt to how they're selling content. So it'll be quite interesting. Um, just noticed there's a lot, a lot more non-US content was screened as well at LA screenings, which I thought was great. I thought the quality was really good. But yeah, no, it's just, it's just really nice to be back in person. And I, and I know we're all really excited for MIPCOM, but it hasn't really changed how we've done business, I wouldn't say. And on that, the, the greater amount of non-US programming that was at the LA screenings, Kevin from Accounts, that was one show that lots of buyers I spoke to spoke It was great. About. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I haven't seen it. But yeah, just from what I've heard. And I'm wondering, you know, where I'm going to be able to see it. So is that something, you know, is it a show that you've got your eye on? Um, we haven't put it on our list, to be honest. Um, there's probably nowhere that it's a really obvious fit for us. I thought it was a great show. It's good. It's good fun. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, and I'm looking forward to someone picking that up as well, because I want to keep watching it. So does that kind of speak to your content needs? Because obviously that's an out and out dr- uh, an out and out comedy. It is. Um, We're not necessarily no. We are picking comedy up. Um, it's just the right. It's the right kind of comedy, and really, it would just be for Dave. It's about whether that kind of ticks the boxes of what we're looking for. But in terms of other content needs, you know, we're always looking for drama. So that's what we tend to go to the LA screenings looking for is that uh, fresh US drama, procedural generally, crime generally. So, you know, there were a few things that we we liked the look of there in LA, but just broadly the kind of content, the kind of content we're looking for in the drama space is soft crime you know, period dramas, and those are the, the the two big genres that resonate in the UK and globally, really. You know, things like Miss Scarlet and the Duke, Sister Boniface Mysteries, which I've mentioned. Those are the shows that we're kind of targeting, and we also have pre-sale discussions on as well. So Miss Scarlet and the Duke, you know, we're, we're right in there very early with um, PBS on that show and we work really closely with the producer on it and we're always looking for you know interesting ways of um being able to to put together shows like that so you know we're we're always having a lot of conversations around pre-sales particularly obviously for our UK channels but a lot of what we're talking about also works outside of the UK for our BBC First channel so we will try and get BBC First in there as well where it makes sense um, that's kind of broad on the drama. You know, we're also looking for really premium content as well, obviously. Then, you know, there is a, a lot of premium drama out there. But in terms of what we're kind of focused on, I use the example of CSI Vegas. So, you know, we would look um, to the US studios for that super premium content in the UK for the UK channels, not so much outside of the UK. We really only take British content outside of the UK. But what we're what we have outside of the UK is the ability to pick up, you know, the BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four dramas, and and turn those around quite close to the UKTX. 
other unscripted content we're looking for. Always on the hunt for character-led adventure and travel. So a show called Exploration Volcano, something similar to that. Motoring content, so that resonates again across Dave, BBC Earth, BBC Brit. You know, we can find common alignment there. Also looking for engineering docs, engineering formatted docs, series. So those work quite, those work well for yesterday and for Earth and Brit as well in our other territories. In terms of the more kind of aspirational female skewed shows, I guess you could say, for W. And BBC Lifestyle, they probably have the most kind of crossover in terms of wish lists. So they're always looking for high quality volume series. And it's really important that they're very warm and authentic, those series. And we kind of feel the same way for BBC Lifestyle. But that's important for W. Um, we're also doing a lot of work now looking at uh, targets for UK TV play. So, you know, that's really ramped up. That's very important for us now. So we're, so we're out there hunting for, you know, a wide variety of titles for UKTV play, actually. So whether it's from well-known high-volume archive drama that may not have had recent exposure but is still well-known, that, you know, things like Bad Girls. Um, and then we're, we're also still looking for exclusive brand-new content as well, UKTV play. And, you know, it's a really exciting time, actually, UKTV play. We're really excited about the direction that's going in. There seems to be, it's not really a trend because it has been a thing for a while, but celebrity-fronted factual or unscripted shows in the UK, there's yeah. a real boom for that. And obviously talent now migrating from online to doing that more and more. Yeah. Do you, Are there issues with, you know, how well those people might not be known in the territories, you know, outside of the UK for you? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think every broadcaster outside of the UK would say that, <laughs> um, you know, there could be some talent that's just not known. But, you know, we also do a lot to build talent. So, you know, we've got Stacey Dooley, Louis Theroux, you know, on a number of channels outside of the UK. And, you know, Stacey, uh, I mean, both amazing talent, um, but they wouldn't have been known before we put them on our channel you know, and we've grown them and, you know, the what's great is they make great content and they keep making great content. If it's someone that's really unknown, it would have to depend on the topic that's being covered. And if that topic resonates, then that's fine. But if it's a topic that doesn't resonate and it's talent that is not necessarily known, we probably wouldn't pick it up. We're seeing a lot of footballers getting kind of making that move, you know, after their playing careers. Yeah. I suppose, you know, footballers, football is an international brand, so maybe that's an area where there could be crossover. Yes, yep. So I think we picked up Class of 92. I think we picked up the Rio documentary. Well, that was an amazing documentary. Yeah, we picked that up in a couple of territories as well, from memory. On the UK TV play, so do those shows that you acquire exclusively for, for the VOD platform, do they have to fall into a specific kind of brand or when they're scheduling and thinking about play, they are thinking about the brands, the channel brands, but also looking at what else we could expand out to. And, you know, that's really ramping up now. That strategy is really ramping up. So there's a whole new VOD team, brilliant um, UK TV play team. So, you know, all of that strategy is being worked on now and it's, yeah, really exciting. So there will be, you know, we'll be looking to acquire a lot more content UK TV play. And does that, so yeah, you, exclusivity as well, because obviously, you know, 
you've got Netflix now and Paramount Plus, you know, recently launched in the UK. So that market's fiercer and fierce, fiercer. So would you be happy sharing across those platforms? It depends on the title. It depends. It really does. It depends on the title. So that's a conversation we have about every single title. Um, there are some things that we won't budge on, but there are some things that we, it, we are open and it really just depends how it goes and what, what the appetite is for the exclusivity. And on the procedural kind of genre that you were talking about, there was that fairly recent announcement about Criminal Minds coming back for Paramount Plus in the US and I suppose it'll be interesting to see. And that's kind of got serialized elements, I think, that they're bringing in because it is for a streamer. So do yeah. you see that genre kind of evolving in line with the studios and their their streaming services? Yeah, yeah, I think it is, definitely. I mean, procedurals are very handy. It's just very handy having those shows in the schedule and on VOD services because people just like to dip in and out of that. So, yeah, I'm not surprised it's come back at all. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more of that. How about so W? So that went free to air. So how has its uh, how has its needs changed since then? I mean that it it hasn't really their needs haven't changed really. I mean probably the biggest move has been to more genuine human moments. So it's it's really focused a channel that's focused now on authenticity and warmth. I think I said that before. So it's. That's at the heart of everything when we go looking for content for for W. And, you know, it was moving that way anyway. So moving to free hasn't really changed that. We're not looking for different kinds of content, just needs to hit that brief. So Life Unfiltered is its tagline, I think, now. It's also available on UK TV Play now, of course, because uh, it's now free, so that's also exciting and opens up another potential genre on play. But yeah, no, it hasn't it hasn't changed dramatically. And so we're fully into the second half of 2022 now. So what are kind of some of the priorities for the rest of the year and markets events? So you mentioned MIPCOM. So what will you be kind of heading there with the, at the top of your mind? At the top of my mind is probably VOD. <laughs> it's just ensuring that, you know, we're keeping across what's going on in the market because it's constantly changing. And just, you know, having those conversations with people and second half of this year is very much going to be focused on, for me, UKTV Play, um, really helping the team support the growth of UKTV Play, obviously keeping all of those other services happy, um, making sure that we're getting our hands on the very best content first in most of our markets. So, you know, it's it's been a very busy first half and it doesn't look like it's slowing down at all. <laughs> if anything, it's getting busier, which is great, which is really exciting. And I think MIPCOM is going to be a really good turning point, you know, getting in terms of getting out of the pandemic and starting to feel a little bit more normal. Led by CEO John Moranis, Toronto-based Blink49 Studios has been busy since launching in November, announcing a string of new projects, a host of talent deals, and, most recently, setting up an unscripted division led by two former Entertainment One execs. The company also received its first green lights over the summer, with Bell Media's CTV commissioning drama series Sight Unseen and US Cablenet Hallmark Channel ordering multi-generational drama Ride. C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller caught up with Carolyn Newman, Blink49 Studios Executive Vice President of Global Scripted, 
to discuss teaming up with ITV Studios-backed UK production company Mammoth Screen on a comic mystery thriller called 12 Days, as well as why US Studios programming going directly onto their own streaming services could be a good thing for the international business. Carolyn joined Blink49 shortly after its launch from LA-based Will Packer Media, where she was head of scripted television. Before that, she was a director of original series for Netflix, where she developed original titles such as Clickbait, The Serpent and Feel Good, while she has also held roles at E1, Amazon Studios and Sphere Media. I've been working with the company since approximately November of last year. Uh, we are a global studio with a lean-in focus around Canada. Um, both creatively and obviously through production services. We, we want to shoot and be home as much as possible. But we also love global talent simultaneously. And as um, I think we've mentioned in the past, we're working with great collaborations with um, British partners as well as American partners and look forward to in French partners as well. So we, we really do like collaborating with the world. We did a first look deal with Sherry Elwood. Sherry Elwood is um, the creator of Moonshine, which currently airs on the CBC in Canada. But she's, you know, a truly, I've known Sherry for being here in the States for many, many years. And she's truly a, a kind of global voice. Um, and she has done Lucifer, many other great shows, and we're really excited to be working with her and um, bring her stories to the world. Um, other things we've done. In terms of um, optioning books, we have uh, Marissa Stapley's book, Things to Do When It's Raining. Marissa Stapley is a New York Times bestseller. Her book, Lucky, was a Reese Witherspoon um, book of the month from last year. She's a Canadian author, um, and we've announced that one, and it's a big romance. So we're really excited um, to be working with Marissa. And then the other announcement I think that's that's been out there in terms of um, optioning material uh, is we have a book uh, called Hold My Girl by Charlene Carr, who's a Nova Scotian author. Um, and she that we won that in a very competitive bid with U.S. global streamers and studios all around the world. Uh, and it's a story about two women um, who basically have to choose what's in the best interest of themselves as mothers or their child. And so that, that's a really interesting story that comes from the Nova Scotian community um, of um, where Charlene is from. So we're, we're really excited about all these different projects. They kind of have a huge breadth, but uh, yeah, and it's just the beginning. I've had a deep history um, with the British community. Uh, going back to my Amazon days, I started working on Mad Dogs with Left Bank and it kind of um, went from there, uh, did Britannia. Um, uh, several others over the course of many years. I worked with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and so um, did run with when I was at E1. Um, so the, my, my ties with the British community are quite strong. And so I was looking for something um, in a tone. I kind of love this, this charade uh, knives out tone and looking for something in that milieu. And I was submitted something um, by Curtis Brown, by a up-and-coming writer who had worked on White Lines um, named Weatherwood, um, which is 12 Days. And it's a murder mystery set over Christmas, um, the 12 days of Christmas in the Swiss Alps, with a really interesting protagonist named Anna, who's kind of like a Scrooge. And it's a fun, twisty thriller, and we started working on it quite intensely when I started working here at Blink. Um, and we got it to a pretty great place, and that's when realizing that 
obviously not being British <laughs> or Swiss, we really needed a great British producer and called Damien, who I'd worked with on The Serpent um, and had just the best experience with him um, doing that when I was at Netflix. And uh, he read him and his team uh, read the script and said in the treatment and said, yeah, we're 100 percent in. This is odd. This is great. Um, so now we are officially doing this as a co-production um, between ourselves and um, taking it out to the market shortly. The partners involved in 12 Days are ourselves, Blink49, and Damien Timmer and Mammoth Screens, uh, as well as, obviously, Ed Weatherhead, the writer. In terms of creating new slates of shows with international co-production opportunities, I like to not look at it necessarily through the business point of view because that's not what wakes me up in the morning, you know, probably to my detriment, but, but I look at it from the creative point of view. What voices, what stories do we, do, I, do we as a company get excited about? That's fundamentally where it begins and ends. Because the rest of it, you know, if you find something you're excited about um, and hopefully with our collective experience, you, can get it, you figure out how to get it made. That's, that's the truth. So that's always where we personally start and if we can be additive that's the other thing you don't want to get into a project with a great voice that you're you're not allowing to move forward so i think it's more the paradigm shift now is creative first co-productions not business first what do you think of the fact that because of the, the way hollywood's changing a lot of the u.s studios the hollywood studios are now doing the very same thing going to europe to set up european co-productions in local languages that they then want to distribute around the world? Are they sort of moving into the area normally occupied by independent producers like yourselves? First and foremost, I think competition is great when it comes to any marketplace. It only creates ultimately a stronger creative market, a stronger business market. Um, I think, you know, I think, frankly, Canada suffered a lot over the years because it hasn't had enough of, um, of a buying community. You know, it's had a very small buying community. And I think um, one of the most exciting reasons about what's on the horizon right now for Canada, as an example, um, is that, all, you know, buyers are coming in that have never been there before. And that makes the marketplace grow. So I think in terms of the bigger conversation, the bigger studios coming into these um, local language marketplaces, you know, hopefully what it does is it infuses the market with more opportunity. Um, and also they will have to work with the local community because that's where the deep relationships do lie. So hopefully organically, it just brings the best to the top and it also infuses the local community with new opportunities. What is your view on the sort of the changing demand for American programming internationally? It's actually a great thing because it makes local communities have to reinvest and really think about their own voices and getting those voices that will provide content for the world. So again, using Canada as a great, great example, I think Bell Media is really stepping up and, you know, I've seen their slates and I think it's really exciting what they're doing in investing in Canadian content for their their landscape, even though, yes, the global community is coming into Canada, certainly, but it just means that there's more investment in local voices. So in a way, it's a good thing, I think. Um, and in, for local buyers, what's a competitive advantage um, is that they will start to get into that community at an earlier standpoint, at an earlier basis, because they'll have to create those inroads and that training. And then there will always be an affiliation um, and an attachment within that creative community to that local buyer. Um, so I think it's all, it's probably a good thing, frankly. 
as more and more studio programming gets put behind the sort of the paywall of these affiliated streamers, what impact is that having on independent producers? And is it the case that they're sort of having a, a sort of spike in demand because they're not, you know, their content is available as it's you know, from America? I'm not a huge fan of the walled garden approach. I know that for business, you know, for certain companies, that's been um, kind of a way forward. But even if you look at from a trend point of view, using Netflix as an example, they're stepping away from that. Because again, I don't think everyone can do everything well, right? So, so independent studios are super important from a research and development point of view. People like me can spend a lot more time trying to take find the one hit and spending the energy to really develop a great script where it's so much harder when you're in these bigger streamers to not to say they can't certainly, but to actually find the thing and start developing it three years before you're ever going to put it on air. Um, and and I, so I, I truly believe that for the independent community, now it's, it's going to change, I think, for the better because this will become a realization um, I think across the board that it's not when you're trying to do programming um, and you're changing that programming strategy, sometimes it's yearly, sometimes it's bi-yearly, what have you. It's really hard to also have development that you're that you're focused on from three years out of that. So how do you do that? It's it, versus actually working with indie studios to see what do you have that I need now or even in a year from now. You know, it, you're just you're it, you're in a stronger position as a buyer. So, I would say there's a massive opportunity for indies to come through in that regard. And then on top of that, working with um, more local buyers, the ZDFs, the Bell Media's, to kind of put together really great strategies to um, fund great stories for 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 everyone's individual market. So it's a two pronged opportunity. I'm interested about the sort of the, the availability of talent, obviously. Lots of big deals were thrown around to try and secure talent by the bigger players, the streamers. Uh, how do how, as a as a new small company in an increasingly vertically integrated world where talent is key? How do you how does that impact you? How do you sort of compete against that kind of stuff? So our advantage in the marketplace is Blink Forty Nine is kind of also through our niche. We're looking in terms of how we invest our dollars at the. Point of, at this point in time is in a Canadian talent, which is still under-indexed. So we are really leaning in to find the great showrunners and in, in investing in their voices and the new up-and-coming talent. And I don't think quite yet the global streamers have necessarily um, tapped as much as that. There are some for sure, but not necessarily as many as other, um, other nationalities per se. So that's how we've kind of gone about it, is being very strategic in terms of like how we want to work and with whom. But I think the whole walled garden thing is like maybe got one or two more years in it. I, I That's what I believe. I think the overall deals are too expensive. And ultimately, um, I think showveralls will continue. But it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of these global streamers start to scale back um, on, their bigger over, on, on their bigger overall deals because... It's really hard to fill those. It's really hard to create enough business to sustain these pieces. And, and that's where the independent community comes in because ultimately you want to have enough eggs you know, spread out um, to, to find the right one. And it's harder when you're in those walled gardens. So I, don't, I anticipate in the next couple of years, those big overalls, some will obviously stay, but the big ones across the board, I don't, I don't anticipate it being the same way as it is right now. 
Are the streamers, now that there's more of them, and some of them may be suffering a little bit, are they becoming more flexible when it comes to rights negotiations? They were sort of notoriously retentive, if you'd like, before. I am more on the creative side. So in terms of like the total deal points, I'm not seeing it. You know, I, I would probably go to John on that for, but I do think so. I think, I do think that streamers, buyers, they want to be more flexible overall in the future because it's really hard to own all the risk across everything. And I don't think that makes a lot of financial sense. So it's good to spread your bets. And especially when you're looking for the thing that might hit, why do you have to necessarily own it all um, is the question. And so, and I think a lot of them are actually asking themselves that question. And also, why not use different models to financially supplement that opportunity? So I, I think it'll probably again end up changing. Like, but as old as new, as new as old, you know. MGM International Television Productions has covered a lot of ground since June 2020, when Roller Bauer was tapped as its new president. Munich-based Roller, who was formerly the founding partner of Tandem and MD of Studio Canal TV, was brought in by the chairman of MGM Television Group, Mark Burnett, with a mandate to expand the iconic MGM brand with a slate of globally sourced series. Over the past two years, the label has built a slate of seven scripted titles, including Harlan Coben's Shelter, Billy the Kid from Vikings creator Michael Hurst, and Spanish-language drama El Fin del Amor. Roller spoke to C21's editorial director, Ed Waller, about MGM's post-acquisition opportunities with Amazon, which completed its acquisition of the US studio earlier this year, as well as building MGM's international TV slate, and whether the subscription video-on-demand bubble is about to burst. One of the things we haven't been able to speak about in previous interviews, but I think we can now, is the uh, the uh, takeover of MGM by Amazon. Tell us about what that means uh, for you, what that means for the uh, the impact on the business. It's early days now in terms of Amazon coming into the MGM world, but it's super exciting to see that we will be able to provide content for Amazon, which by the way, we've been doing it already. We started with a Spanish-speaking series called El Fin de la Moa, and that is actually not only wrapping up its post, but we got the green light to develop the second season from Amazon. So that's exciting that we're able to do local language for them. We're also working with them on the global level, English language, and that's with Harlan Coben's IP. So with Harlan, we brought in Mickey Bolotar, which is a YA series. And what we've been able to do is, first we got a pilot, and now they've greenlit to go to series. So it's exciting to have two projects with Amazon. And we've got two Spanish-speaking uh, series that we are developing with them. So we're starting, we're already there, and to now come into their world is incredibly thrilling because as you know yourself, Amazon has a business and that, those businesses could actually be plug and play for the content that we're bringing. We're hoping that we'll be able to tap into those businesses and have new opportunities there. What will it mean for the distribution of MGM programming around the world to third parties? That I don't know, darling. No, I genuinely don't know, because <laughs> it's not my area, right. you know, like that's Chris Ottinger, mm. so that's what he's doing. Okay. Um, 
But what I can talk about is that we are maintaining working with different partners and um, in terms of our co-productions. Um, as you know, I've done a number of co-productions and there are two that we are presenting. Actually three, there's Billy the Kid that Epix has in the US and was done as a co-production with Nant. And we have a second one, which is Reunion, that we produced with Make It Happen Studios. And they brought in the partners of France Television, ZDF and Rai. And we have a third one that we put together and produced ourselves. And that has Peacock here in the US via Play Nant and Stan in Australia and uh, NBC Group in the Middle East and North Africa. So we're continuing with our co-productions and um, putting those pieces together. Well, presumably in future, your co-productions will also have Amazon as a partner or is that not mandatory? Um, <laughs> At the moment, what we're doing is we're going through the slate. Some of it we developed with a streamer in mind, and others we developed for other potential partners. So we are seeing if they could be placed with Amazon, but it's not always a given. So we're working that through right now. Obviously, there's been a lot of mega mergers in the last year. Um, uh, a lot of them sort of tech companies are involved. Buying up content companies. Do you, what do you think of the the idea of sort of Silicon Valley, as it were, taking over Hollywood? It's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure that they're taking over Hollywood per se. I would say that there is a natural and almost organic coming together with distribution as well as accessibility to the audience and having that far-reaching accessibility to the audience. And if you look at Amazon, for example, there are over 200 million subscribers. And the, that audience that they're reaching, which will then sometimes become their customers for their prime, uh, that, that I find intriguing because it's an organic coming together via programming, via storytelling. And that passion for storytelling will reach that audience that will then, of course, connect and be the connective tissue to the customer. In terms of the, the streaming boom, what do the, uh, I mean, the idea of being able to make an instantaneous hit, a global hit out of a local show, that must be very exciting for a, a producer like MGM. Personally, I'm always excited when there's a global rollout from a project and then it is seen simultaneously in so many different countries. I just want to take a step back and say we did something similar in Pillars of the Earth, but we literally put a chart together, Excel chart, and said, this is how they're going to launch in Germany. This is when they're going to launch in Germany. And then this is how they're going to launch in the UK. And when are they going to launch? We created this global rollout by having all our partners talk to each other. So seeing today, flash forward, where you will have a local language production go completely viral and global is so exciting that the technical ability is there to do that. The fact that there is the technical ability via all of these streamers and that they can have an effect on someone's life and you create that water cooler discussion, but you're doing it by crossing all those borders and doing it, that's pretty incredible. That's a thrilling way to have storytelling potentially connect the world.
and maybe hopefully change it to a better place? At least that would be wonderful. <laughs> the boom on local language just shows to me it doesn't matter what language. And of course, English language can be more accessible in certain countries where they're not used to watching something dubbed. That's very true. Uh, in North America, it's, we didn't grow up on that. But people are getting used to it and people are accepting it. And that's exciting that they do see it. However, I would say that probably the majority of the people would not look at a foreign language show with subtitles. When they come at the end of the day, they want it a little bit easier. They want to enjoy it without having to have the subtitle. So I'd say a lot of the productions that are coming with local language, most audience is looking at it in English language, in a dubbed English language. One of the, one of the interesting dimensions to the streaming boom is the sort of the fact that the studios are taking away their content from licensing and, and keeping it for their own streaming platforms. What, what, what's the impact on the, on the global market for the, that strategy? Do you think? The fact that studios are vertically integrated and keeping and retaining their rights, of course, is impacting certain networks or smaller platforms that were dependent on that. That's very true. And I believe that's also been, you know, one door closes, the other one opens. So I think it's also been good because it's allowed local voices to have a chance to be heard and originals have boomed because of that. Um, what about the impact on the availability of talent? Obviously, talent is the engine for a lot of the content that we're making. Has the streaming boom ring-fenced a whole bunch of talent? Or tell us, has it caused talent inflation? Tell us what the impact on the talent world has, has been. Talent is one of the challenges we have today because there are so many programs that are being ordered and commissioned. The fact that also talent uh, can choose to go down different paths in, in the stories because they're being offered so much more does mean, of course, that we are having to juggle budgets and how to make all that work out. A lot of the streamers have put money in everyone's pocket, and certainly in the drama space, but over the last few years, they've created a boom in demand. But now that the SVODs are sort of, um, are they plateauing a little bit? They're now sort of, Netflix's numbers are down. Do you think the SVOD bubble is showing signs of bursting at any time? Looking at it from a consumer, customer, and audience point of view, I think we all are evaluating where do we want to spend our money, our monthly fee towards entertainment. And of course, that will have a direct effect on which choices and which platform and which investment you will decide to stay or not. And I think, yes, we are starting to see that the audience is very much thinking about which one is going to be their home in terms of getting all their entertainment. What's exciting about Amazon is they have an AVOD service with Freevee and it's doing quite well. So we're excited to be able to supply and work with them. That's all for this episode. You can hear all those discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Nico Franks. Thanks for listening.